This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. February marks Invasive Species Month, and today we highlight a problem deep in a ravine in Waimanalo at the base of the Ko'olaus. It sounds like this. Turns out a population of koki frogs has nestled into a section of conservation land owned by the Department of Hawaiian Homelands, the Board of Water Supply, and the Department of Land and Natural Resources. The first reports came in almost exactly a year ago this week, but officials have had little success in eliminating them altogether, so more drastic action may be needed. Senator Chris Lee represents the area. This particular colony, which is in one particular ravine uh, at the base of the Ko'olaus in Waimanalo, seems like it had been there for some time before anybody even discovered it. But when it was discovered, it was clear that there was a, a fairly sizable population, certainly with the potential to spread. And that was the cause for, I think, some of the alarm bells going off. Because if it had been there this long without being detected, you know, there really is that critical mass that creates the opportunity for uh, getting into some of the nurseries in the area and those plants being distributed all around the island. And once we get to a situation like that, there's, there's no turning back. So how are we going to tackle this one? Well, we've been working to get the Department of Land Natural Resources and Department of Agriculture and our invasive species folks who are the boots on the ground doing a lot of the work around the island all on the same page. And so they're coordinating now to do citric acid treatments, which are what's typically used to eradicate koki frogs, and do that rapidly because I think one of the challenges that the departments face is a lack of resources. And so we needed to make sure that there wasn't a lapse in that activity to try and control the area because once the control stops, you know, the population can swell out of proportion and out of control. So it was really important that this stuff happens, and it sounds like it's happening or it's about to happen on a, a much larger scale, and hopefully we'll have some results. Well, how large of an area is this infestation? You know, physically, it's not that large an area. It's relatively contained to one stream area where there is moisture and water and and all of that. But the challenge is, you know, there's a lot of nurseries nearby, like immediately nearby in the back of Waimanalo. And we know that invasive species spread as plants are being moved around and sold and purchased. And so we want to prevent that population from spreading. Right now, the plan from the department is to certainly send people in um, at night to identify and catch the frogs as much as they can. But the broader application of citrus um, citric acid uh, will, could be an aerial uh, target where they come in, uh, sort of like putting out a, a wildfire with a water drop. And that's been shown to be really successful. So we want to make sure that we catch the stuff that the people going in themselves cannot. And that's something that we want to make sure the community is aware of and make sure that it happens sooner rather than later to try and really suppress those numbers before they become unmanageable. Well, I recall going out there, I think it was with the Department of Ag, maybe a decade ago, uh, because there were some reports of koki frogs in some ravine. And I remember it was difficult because it was windy that night, and the koki frog don't like wind, and they won't chirp. So uh, it was a challenge. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think um, it's definitely challenging. Uh, it's where you're at night, and it's difficult terrain, and it is far enough away from a neighborhood where you don't have regular eyes on the situation or ears on the situation in this case. And, you know, we only need to look to the Big Island and ask our neighbors there how quickly things went from a couple isolated spots 
to spreading around. And now it's going to be impossible to eradicate on the Big Island. It's just a way, a part of the way of life. And that's something we hope to avoid here if we can get action taken really quickly. So the spraying of citrus acid, citric acid, if it's aerial spraying, you know, uh, what else could be a, an intended consequence? I mean, will it affect other wildlife? Well, in general, this is something that's been done regularly in other areas and has been done successfully. And I think the challenge is you got to weigh the benefits of eradication and the methodology against the spread of the species. And really, this has been one of the most successful ways to ensure that you catch everything because I think, as everyone knows, you hear a frog at night or you hear 100 frogs at night in a particular area, and you've got a limited amount of hours and time to try and go and physically either catch them or um, spray them by hand. And in this remote area, it's just really difficult to do. So this may be one of our only tools, and we hope that it's successful. And do we need additional funds in order to, you know, launch this effort? You know, in the long term, I think we're definitely going to need additional resources. There was an estimate a few years ago that took a look at what it would cost to contain the spread of invasive species all throughout the islands, and that number was in excess of $50 million a year. And right now we're budgeting only a fraction of that for many of our invasive species efforts, including this one. So we know that we have a lot more work to do, and we know that this has got to be a high priority because it affects agriculture, it affects commerce, it affects people's neighborhoods, and really just our quality of life. So it's something that needs to be put on a higher priority, and I think with the budget looking a little bit better this year coming out of COVID, I hope that more resources are put to this end. Well, you know, we lost the battle with Cokie Frog there uh, on, on the Big Island, you know, when it was first flagged. You know, I worry that we'll be losing the battle with Little Fire Ant as it spreads around, and, and, and that stuff is bad stuff. You know, absolutely. We have, um, I think, a number of sort of key invasive species that are are on the, the cusp of spreading. Koki uh, frog is certainly one, um, at least besides the Big Island where that battle's already been lost. Little fire ant has been identified in a number of places, even here on Oahu right now as we speak. And if that kind of invasive critter gets out there, I mean, we're talking about having effects on pets who are blinded by a single bite. I mean, if they get into our beaches, no longer will we be able to just lay on the beach on a towel without having to worry about getting stung constantly and repeatedly. And it's just a huge, huge blight on the quality of life in Hawaii and even our tourism market and the ability to attract people to a place where you don't have to worry about that kind of thing like you do in other places. So it really is a huge issue to make sure that our invasive species efforts and funding are going well and going well consistently to ensure that there's not lapses where these things can get out of control. On Maui, they experimented with aerial treatment uh, for the little red fire ant, you know, and so if we start doing the aerial treatment here for koki frog, I mean, uh, what kind of notice do we have to give the public? I don't know if this is an emergency situation or, or, or what's the process? You know, I think especially now responding to COVID, I think things have gotten pretty good with local elected officials and other community leaders being able to spread information rapidly. And I think in this case where you have the need to do this kind of quick aerial treatment to make sure that the spread of Koki frogs is stopped, 
The department can work with all of us elected officials and our community leaders, neighborhood boards and others to make sure that that word gets out there you know, within hours or days time so that everybody knows what's happening and to educate on the risks of what this entails and not doing it entails. And so I think right now it seems pretty clear that everybody doesn't want cookie to spread. So I think we're in a good spot to be able to make some progress and educate. And that's really important because if there are places that have been missed where cookie frogs are still being heard in the evening, we need to know that. And the public needs to help make the state and the counties and everybody else aware. Okay. All right. Well, I guess we will uh, be on the lookout for more information as this story develops. But thank you so much, Senator. Thanks very much. That was Senator Chris Lee talking to us about a plan in the works to possibly spray citric acid across a ravine where a stubborn colony of koki frogs has taken hold. They were first reported about a year ago. And during the month of February, we will bring you updates on the battle against invasive species across the state. Fresh Air, science journalist Florence Williams. When her husband divorced her, it affected her emotional and physical health. Her new book, Heartbreak, is about how scientists are investigating the biological pathways of this kind of pain and why heartbreak can actually affect your heart, digestive system, immune system, and more. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for HPR comes from the evening part-time program at the William S. Richardson School of Law, accepting both the GRE and LSAT for admissions. Information and application at law.hawaii.edu. of HPR's programming hours are locally hosted. But what do you do if your listening schedule doesn't line up with your favorite show? You can stream many of our shows on demand. Enjoy the latest episodes of Bridging the Gap, The Early Muse, Connie Capilla Sunday, and more. And dive deep into the archives as well. For the full list, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Downwind, you get the drift, literally. Our next story is about an effort underway to get fair compensation for exposure to radiation due to military testing across the country in the Pacific. 
we introduce you to Robert Celestial. His father's from Maui, his mother's from Guam. Celestial was a sergeant in the Army tasked with cleaning up soil on Inuitok Atoll decades ago. What he stumbled across in military documents that were kept secret but then later declassified has sent him on a mission to have those living on Guam who were exposed to a possible harmful U.S. nuclear testing fairly compensated. He's with a group called the Pacific Association for Radiation Survivors, and they are focused on RECA, the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, which will sunset July 9th, 2022. I was stationed in Inuitaka Atoll back in the 70s, cleaned up the 43 nuclear bombs they detonated. And so I got sick. And so they gave me a disability from the Army. And then in 1998, I did research, and I found out that they formed an advisory committee called the Human Radiation Experiment. And so from there, they declassified all the agencies in the United States and Congress. And so I found out that Guam was inundated with nuclear fallout, but it was kept secret. And then I dug even deeper, and I found out that the reason why Guam was a closed island from 46 to 62 is because they were doing the detonations in the Marshall Islands. And so I found a Lieutenant Bert Schreiber, who was a chemical, biological, and radiological officer in Texas. He was still alive, so I contacted him, got a sworn statement from him stating that his Geiger counters in Guam in 1952 were going off the scale, but he was under acute clearance. A key clearance, a top secret clearance from the Atomic Energy Commission at that time, which is now Department of Energy. And so he was told by his commander back then that go back to your working place and don't tell anyone. So he couldn't tell anyone for all those years. So I contacted him in 2001. And then I got his sworn testimony. So after I brought this issue to our government, no one believes me. So they amended the, the RECA program in 2000. But we missed it in 2001. However, in 2002, Congress went back to the National Academy of Science and go out and find out what other geographical areas to include in RECA. So I found them, the Brer Committee, called the Border Radiation Effects Research Committee. And so I contacted Dr. Isaf Alnabusi. She was the senior director for that program. So she invited me to Washington, D.C. in 2004. I went there, presented our case, all our documents, oral and written testimony. And in 2005, they published a book from the NES, submitted it to Congress, stating that, yes, the resident Guam did receive a nuclear fallout from the testings in the Marshall Islands and that Guam should be included in the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act as downwinders. So ever since then, we've been working with Congress to include us. Then we found New Mexico, Idaho, that needed to get into Promosa. So we built the Frontline Community Group, and we've been advocating ever since, almost 20 years now. We come this far, we have two bills, Senate Bill 2798 and House Bill 5338. So 5338 already made it through the Judiciary Committee and is now in the House for a vote. We're working with Senator Durbin. We just had a Zoom meeting a couple of days with Rita Seaman. She's the senior legislative director for Senator Durbin, and they're in favor of the RECA bill, and we're working to try and get it on the agenda. So hopefully they'll vote it out of committee. So that's where we're at today. So how many people could potentially be affected, you know, from Guam? For Guam, we worked on the timeline. They only gave us 1946 to 62. Those are destination dates. So anyone in Guam for at least one year, if you were in Guam for one year from 46 to 62, then you may apply for the compensation and the benefits and hopefully to pass the bill. And that's the way it's going to work for Guam is that anyone in Guam, or at least a year who has the compensable disease, and there's 21 diseases plus chronic illnesses also if they can be qualified by a physician. So the way 
research is that if they pass the bill, then the Department of Justice sends out applications for Guam. They get adjudicated all applications. And if they're eligible, then they're given the free medical care screening and $150,000. So the testing that they were doing there, so it was more than just Bikini Atoll? Well, it was Bikini and Inuit Tuck Atoll. A lot of people, they commemorate the Bravo test that was done in, in Bikini in 1954. However, the test prior to that is the same amount. The 10.4 megaton hydrogen bomb was detonated in 1952. They never mentioned that one. And that was Mike Ivey. And that was the one that was detected here in Guam by Lieutenant Bert Schreiber three days after the detonation. So you were in the Army and you were charged with cleaning up that material? Yes. In 1977, they sent a whole bunch of us to uh, Lojo Island, which is the northern island, in the atoll, in Uitek Atoll. And that was my job. I drove a 20-ton dump truck. We went to the different islands. They have 40 islands. And they scraped two feet. And we built the dome. I don't know if you're familiar yes. with the dome. Mm-hmm. Uh, the run dome. Yes. My first job was to try and drain that dome. They didn't tell me that was a detonation of a nuclear bomb. And wow. we were in there knee-deep, waist-deep. And so out of 4,000 of us, there's only 300 of us still alive. What was your reaction when you saw those documents that were unclassified? I was in shock. I, I didn't believe it because I was doing research for me, for my comrades. They went and then I found out, why is Guam in here? <laughs> and then I started digging more and more and more. It, it was a lot of documents. The Department of Energy, they didn't even know that they had that website, Department of Energy. And, and I was in there for more than three years trying to extrapolate all the information for Guam. And then after the meeting at the National Academy of Science, I was summoned with Mr. William Brady that I hired from Nevada. He's a health physicist. We were summoned to the Forrester Building in Washington, D.C., which is Department of Energy, and we were questioned. And they said, Mr. Brady, we know who you are, but Mr. Selechi, where'd you get your information? <laughs> and I said, from your website. And then they dismissed us, and then a couple of... I was uh, summoned by your mayor of Hawaii at that time, 2004, and I helped the chief of staff there to see if they wanted uh, information, so I showed her how to get it. And then I came back to Guam, and a couple of days later, she calls me up and says, what happened to the website? So I go on my computer and says, this website has been pulled due to national security. <laughs> after I've been working with it for so many years, and I guess after speaking with the folks at DOE, at Department of Energy, they uh, pulled the whole entire website. Wow. But you, had you already downloaded documents and information off of that? Yes, yes. So that, that was good. And then they published the information. It's called the Assessment of the Scientific Information for the Radiation Exposure Screening and Education Program. And on page 200, this is what it concluded for Guam on page 200. As a result of its analysis, the committee concludes that Guam did receive measurable fallout from atmospheric testing nuclear weapons in the Pacific. Residents of Guam during that period should be eligible for compensation under RECA, which is the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, in a way similar to that of persons considered to be downwinders. That was the main conclusion, and and that's why we continue to fight and advocate for this, is because we're, we're eligible, according to the National Academies of Science. It's not Robert Celestia saying it anymore at that time. And so you're mission, you're bent on fair compensation. And I thank the folks from Idaho and New Mexico and the Navajo Nation and, and Utah for including us in the bill. We worked with the bill, the uh, Congresswoman Fernandez and Senator Kraper, Senator Hahn, and we were able to give our wish list at that time prior to the bill being filed. And so we were able to get Guam in the bill Again. Okay, but but right now you're under a time clock because this thing sunsets in July of this year. 
That's correct. That's correct. And the good part is that this is the closest we ever came. It passed judiciary in the House, and now it's in the House floor. All you have to do is vote on it, and then we're working with the Senate right now. And as I said, that we had a Zoom meeting with Senator Durbin, and he's the chairperson for the Senate judiciary. So if both sides pass it, and hopefully the president signs it, then we could reap the benefits of this program. The thing that I asked Congress is that they only gave us detonation date from 1946-62. They ended the detonations in the Marshall Islands in 62. However, strontium-90 and cesium-137 has a half-life of 30 years. So those are radionuclides. So they were, they were found here in Guam. So if they have a 30-year lifespan, then I asked them if they could include the 30 years to 1962. So it would have been all the way up to 1992, but they declined. They only gave us 46 to 62. Okay, but anyone living on that, living on Guam at that time, might be eligible for this compensation. So you were talking fair number of people if they if they uh, develop you know one of these diseases. Yes, yes. As a matter of fact, a lot of them are in the states right now. Contacted a lot. Uh, they've contacted me, and and we've been communicating, and we're waiting. For hopefully, that the bill be passed that they will be able to uh, apply for the benefits. And so that's what we're doing right now. That was Robert Celestial, who's working to extend the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act past its sunset date of July 2022 and to include those on Guam who may have been unknowingly exposed to radiation from military experience in the Pacific. Lucille Beats headline story is about an effort to shield the state from liability for pandemic harm, including inmate deaths. Joining us for today's reality check is politics and opinion editor Chad Blair. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So we've got a story uh, from Kevin Dayton. Right. Kevin covers so much for us, including the legislature and including the correctional facilities, which often are related to the, the legislature because of of oversight. And you're absolutely right. This lawsuit is coming, excuse me, uh, rather this a bill to prevent lawsuits, right, to prevent liability for the state is coming from Governor Ige, the Ige administration, the attorney general's office. And if this bill were to pass, it would actually be retroactive to January 1st, 2020. And of course, COVID hit our shores in March of 2020. Eric Seitz, the local attorney who represents uh, a lot of people that are in our prisons and jails, uh, says this is immoral. The lawsuit is really a way to try and avoid being held responsible for uh, poor handling of how to deal with COVID in our facilities. Uh, Kevin did, however, check with the attorney general's office who says that sites uh, doesn't quite have the bill right, that it's not specific to inmates, and it's meant to protect the uh, state from, from claims, general claims regarding COVID. But it, it looks pretty clear from the language of the bill that, in fact, it could directly apply uh, to inmates and uh, the, and our facilities. And this is a little tricky, too, because, you know, they're mm. trying to get all the inmates uh, uh, vaccinated. But, you know, that's a challenge. Right. And Seitz actually was involved in a lawsuit where a judge, a district court judge last year, found that the state really did botch how they handled COVID uh, in our prisons, in our jails, even though it had a pandemic response plan in place. For example, when new people were admitted, they'd be tested, they'd be quarantined. But the judge also singled out an example where uh, in Hilo, the facility there, one room holding up to 60 inmates. I mean, that just doesn't bode well for, for protecting people from COVID. 
So we'll just have to see how this plays out then uh, uh, as it makes its way through the judiciary committees, that kind of thing. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, Kevin did check with Carl Rhodes, uh, Senate Judiciary Chair, and he's not inclined to, to have a hearing on the bill. He said he hadn't yet read it, but he felt like, you know, this should be like the private sector. Uh, lawsuits should be allowed if necessary, but we'll see. One never knows. As you know, Catherine, one never knows what goes on in the big square building yes. <laughs> on Baratania, but it's a serious matter. Uh, thousands, literally thousands of inmates from Hawaii since COVID came to town have, have contracted COVID. All right. Well, thanks so much, uh, uh, Chad. And we'll just uh, see how this plays out. Thanks. I'm sure we'll have an update uh, shortly. All right. That was Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Read Kevin Dayton's story online at civilbeat.org. have reported a staggering rise in the number of diagnosed eating disorders across the country, uh, particularly among young people. The increase in cases is straining the capacity of treatment facilities, and those seeking help are faced with long wait times and limited resources. Ipono Foundation is Hawaii's first treatment center for eating disorders, and they're currently, they currently operate the only specialized residential program in the state. The conversation Savannah Harriman pote spoke with Dr. Adam Coles, the president and medical director of IPONO, about how treatment for eating disorders is evolving. We're working with a lot of different terms, right, because eating disorder is just a generalized category for a lot of different presentations of how these behaviors present. Can you give our listeners a little bit more clarity on what that actual lived experience might be like for someone? Um, yeah, gen- eating disorders is a kind of umbrella term, right? But there are many, several different formal disorders. But actually, what we find is, you know, folks often have a meeting of the minds and discover similarities um, and really gain some benefit from being, you know, in a close, intimate residential setting with each other and that shared experience um, in a supportive, you know, validating setting. I do feel like there has been more awareness, and you can tell me tell me what you feel as a clinician, your understanding of it is, more awareness of different types of eating disorders as well as just the generalized body dysmorphia that a lot of people feel and is encouraged by certain normative presentations of culture. Do you feel like that awareness more generally is actually translating into less people suffering from eating disorders? What I think is actually happening is we're we're appreciating where folks are struggling potentially earlier or in a broader in a broader matrix, the earlier understanding or the earlier mythology, I want to say, you know, is that eating disorders are primarily a, a kind of disorder experienced by women and you know young women and girls. We know that's not true. It's been known for a really long time, and yet the kind of cultural appreciation for the broader gender spectrum experience of not just a you know challenge and disordered experience with food, but also with body image that you bring up, which I think is really important because dissatisfaction or negative comparison of our bodies with others or with some, you know, idealized uh, body image is rampant in our culture. And I think certain forces have been at work that have really increased the power of that, you know, negative comparison that we have. Some of those forces are how much time we're spending in virtual settings, whether in Zoom meetings with others, 
who can kind of adjust their backgrounds. They can de-age themselves digitally, even in a Zoom meeting. And social media tools like TikTok and Instagram and things allow folks to manipulate the images that they put out there. In my profession, I don't think we're completely up to speed on what are the psychological ramifications of not just a culture of body dissatisfaction, but, but digital image manipulation in real time doing to folks who are sort of consuming that media and participating in that media. I worry that folks are actually actively in real time dissociating themselves from their actual lived experience in their own body and really trying to spend more time in an idealized state. We're up against a lot of forces that we weren't 10, 20 years ago as clients, as folks struggling with that, but professionals, but also just ourselves. I've run into a lot of people who have a fair amount of body dysmorphia, or maybe or it's more accurate maybe to say body dissatisfaction. It's rare for me to run into someone just in, in the community who's sort of happy with their body. So we have an opportunity, but it's, it's, it's a sobering one. Do you find that the general public is dismissive of eating disorders because they are not well understood or perhaps because they're culturally associated with young women? I think eating disorders give a lot of folks uh, and those of us in the field, you know, um, nervousness, trepidation, because they're serious disorders and they have very serious symptoms and can have very serious consequences. A mentor of mine used to say that eating disorders gives even experienced psychiatrists a little quake in their boots. I think another set of folks really want to understand and help folks, help friends, help family, um, identify when it's happening and are and really try and be proactive. And I think that that population is growing. I think one of the encouraging signs I see is that there are more adolescents who are talking with each other, who are noticing things that their friends are doing or not doing, and first talking with them, and then even bringing it up with their parents, you know, or, you know, trying to get them to seek out some help. And then, you know, there is, I think, a small, you know, population of folks who do want to sort of, I think, minimize or operate from a totally different philosophy around, you know, what constitutes healthy bodies, healthy behavior, and things like that. And, you know, I sometimes get linked to some, you know, sites that are much more sort of pro-restriction or pro-ana, as we say, um, and, and, you know, other ways of keeping your appetite under control and things like that, even though they're a smaller population, highly vocal. I think one of the challenges that folks face personally when they're thinking about seeking out help is that others have noticed, potentially others have noticed something is going wrong or something is concerning and they bring it up to them, whether it's a friend, a parent, a significant other, that the, the person themselves have not particularly noticed anything wrong or felt any sense of you know, what we would say dysphoria about, you know, or, you know, feeling bad as a consequence of in the business, you know, the sort of basic teaching is that a lot of eating disorder behavior is what we call ego syntonic, meaning uh, the person doesn't really experience the symptoms as painful, not in the same way that one might experience like depression uh, or anxiety. Um, but that it's it's serving a need that is then providing some form of relief, not, this, not necessarily happiness, but a sense of 
control, safety, routine, escape, and and so goes along with the ego's need to you know get to safety, and and other disorders you know can often like depression as one example can be experienced as ego dystonic. It, it's happening and they don't like it, and I think that's what makes eating disorders a difficult you know zip code to work in for clients and for you know clinicians. You know, eating disorders is is one of the most dangerous category of psychiatric illnesses. Um, it has a very high mortality rate, I believe the highest mortality rate of the psychiatric illnesses. And so you know, part of the assessment and treatment process is to continually, you know, assess for self-injurious thoughts, behavior, and suicidality because it has a very high prevalence in this population. And I think we're really beginning to appreciate the danger to kind of the identified male population as well, because there's such a stigma and such a low appreciation, as we were discussing earlier, for that population that it's been hard for them to find treatment, to get a diagnosis to, without experiencing a ton of stigma. You know, and I have to admit here that our residential program at IPOMA right now is, is for identified females only, um, but the desire is to expand you know, the desire is always to expand treatment options for folks. And that's something we think about a lot. If you had just one, one minute, one small elevator ride to convey to someone that this was an issue that we, as a community in the state, need to take more seriously, what would you want them to know? Oh, no pressure, right? <laughs> I'm going to share a phrase that... A mentor of mine shared it was in the elevator one day a family member of mine you know had had just sought out some therapy for severe anxiety and i was sharing with uh, this teacher who's I was very close to you know that this was happening and you know that it, i didn't want it to affect my professional work you know just to let me know if if she noticed anything um, and she didn't even respond to that part but she just said you know, it is all around us until it touches us. And that was all she said. And I, that's, that's been with me all of these years. I think it's easy for humans to make believe that it's always going to happen to someone else. But I think one thing we've learned in, in COVID for sure is, is that, you know, we're, it is us. It's all us. Any of us could experience this path or any others. But it also means that folks should not be afraid of it, that there's good treatment, that we can talk about it just like we talk about diabetes and not be ashamed. These disorders don't like the light, so it's just another part of the human experience. That was Dr. Adam Coles, President and Medical Director at the IPONO Foundation. He spoke with the conversations Savannah Harriman Poet about the rise in eating disorders. We will have links uh, on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Support for HPR comes from the William S. Richardson School of Law at the University of Hawaii, offering an evening part-time JD program for working professionals. Information and application at law.hawaii.edu.
Exciting news from NPR today. The 2022 Tiny Desk Contest will be kicking off next week. For the last eight years, the contest has given nearly 35,000 musicians from across the country to compete for a national audience at NPR headquarters in Washington, D.C. You know, Tiny Desk Contest winners have gone on to tour the world, sign with major labels, and open for legendary performers. The first Hawaii musician to perform a Tiny Desk concert was ukulele player Taimani Gardner nearly two years ago. To celebrate the start of this year's contest, we are re-airing our conversation with HPR reporter Noe Tanigawa about the concert. Have you seen any of these Tiny Desk concerts? Yes, they're so cute. The, aren't they? <laughs> and they turned out to be this really powerful launch pad for musicians, especially musicians that maybe might have thought they never had a shot previously. I mean, the whole thing is kind of stewarded by Bob Boylan, who's the host of All Songs Considered. He curates a series, and it has become a major way for millions of people to find new artists. And the big deal today is that finally a Hawaii musician has made the cut. virtuoso Taimane. She's the first Hawaii artist to perform behind this so-called tiny desk. <laughs> and this is her original, E Ala E. You can hear her ukulele work there, right? Beautiful. And uh, she played in this concert with um, percussionist Jonathan Haro. Ramiro Marziani was guitarist there. Melissa Beethoven played violin and background vocals. And Leo, a Polynesian dancer from Tahiti, was there. This is Taimani's hit, Fire. Closes the set out with a new original. So we're just looking forward to this. Very dreamy. I, I love know. it. She's got so many different flavors, you know, to her music, really. And she brought a dancer behind that little tiny desk this time. But, you know, it's not that tiny. Chick Corea's grand piano has fit back there before. Muka Pazza's played there. They have 23 people, you know. So the definition of tiny has been debated in this context, but no one denies the impact that getting onto this program can have. Uh, Taimane did bring back some behind-the-scenes scoops for us. She says it is Bob Boylan's real actual desk, and it ends up about 50 or 60 NPR employees just kind of come on in and gather around in front of this desk. Can you go? Pretty much forget about it, unless you're an NPR employee or can get one of them to invite you as their guest. And Taimane says the whole scene is really youthful. People seem happy to be working at NPR, and she said in the bathroom, there are little post-its with messages like, go girl, <laughs> you can do this. Nice. <laughs> Cute, right? Taimane's Tiny Desk Concert drops on YouTube March 13th, and it's available on NPR.org. Now, this Tiny Desk thing is a real deal. They've recorded more than 900 artists at this point, and you might wonder, how did Taimane get on? Well, she was invited after her performance at South by Southwest last year. But the annual Tiny Desk contest is on right now and that's a chance oh. to snag a tiny desk concert yourself so i thought maybe we could listen to some of the past winners there is a panel of judges led by bob boylan that host of all songs considered now people contort themselves trying to figure out what his taste is but when you ask 
what he's looking for? Boylan says simply singularity, something only you can do. So hey, check out this Tiny Desk concert winner from 2018, Naya Izumi, guitarist and singer-songwriter from Columbus, Georgia. Yeah, he uh, got a Sony Masterworks contract the very next year. Wow, what a guy. And his entry video is online, too. I tell you, it is so cute. Really, Catherine, it's great. Now, the 2019 winner had made it to the final rounds in a previous contest, so they already kind of knew about him there. Imagine the serious listening that's done if someone like Quinn Christofferson can edge out, I mean, way over 6,000 other contestants. This is Two Guys from Alaska, Quinn Christofferson. in Alaska, you know, they, hey, we do this, well, let's record it, let's send it in. I mean, there is a lot of really serious listening going on here, and that's what people rely on this whole operation for, you know? It's a great launching pad. Yeah, they discover different kinds of musicians. Now, the most popular Tiny Desk video has gotten way over 45 million views. It is Anderson Pack and the Free National. They were recorded back in 2016. Gotta watch his entire video. It's great. Taiman is feeling the momentum now too. And do you really want to know how it happened for her? Because yeah. it was not like just, you know, how everybody thinks you're an overnight success. <laughs> well, Taimani's been kicking around Honolulu and touring for years. I mean, she was a child star, right? But she's been putting in the time. She's gotten her 10,000 hours, let me tell you. She went from playing covers of favorite songs and lots of Hawaiian numbers. And then she kind of moved into the flamenco repertoire. She just kills with the habanera from Carmen. It's one of her signature numbers there. And then she started writing. She now has a body of original songs, and she created a fully staged theater performance with dancers and everything at one point. Then it seemed like about four years ago, maybe, I think about that, she teamed up with promoter Mark Tyrone. T-Rex Productions. He is relentless. He's also an attorney. He let everybody here and in the industry know when Taimani went to South by last year. He made sure somebody from Tiny Desk saw her. It was Boylan himself, and that's how the seed was planted. Wow. So a lot of artists from Hawaii wonder how it's done. It's not 
you know, it's no mystery. It's just a lot of work. Well, you know, I'm thinking, so it's a little bit of a gimmick, right? Kind of like a karaoke uh, in the car, right? <laughs> but, you know, you figure, okay, 50 people around this tiny desk. You know, we have the Atherton here. That's we like could 75. do it to ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, the talent that we have here is just phenomenal. We have Taimani. I mean, come on. Exactly. So the door's open. Yeah. See who else can walk through. Okay. All right. You Listen up, okay, and, and enter. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thanks so much, Noe. Thanks, Catherine. That was a segment with NPR's Noe Tanigawa from 2020 about NPR's Tiny Desk Contest. Submissions for the 2022 Tiny Disc Contest opens up next Tuesday, February 8th. We'll have links to more information on the contest on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. now. Tomorrow, we check in with Honolulu's Department of Emergency Medical Services. Our paramedics have been stretched thin in recent weeks with the Omicron variant spreading so fast. Been affected by the surge? Share your story. Call or talk back line 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect on Facebook. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow, won't you, for the conversation.